0: Welcome to History Talk, produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective from Ohio State and Miami University and Oxford History Departments. I'm your host, Patrick Payandi,
1: And I'm your other host, Leticia Wiggins. The Middle East makes the news each day, often with the most turbulent topics. The average person could be excused for failing to follow, let alone understand, each new development, group, or event.
0: Unsurprisingly, policymakers also seem unable to understand the region's complexities or develop sound, sustainable strategies for a more peaceful Middle East.
1: In a recent Distinguished talk for the Ohio Academy of History, Jane Hathaway of Ohio State's History Department called for historians to wade into the policymaking debate so that more informed decisions might be made in the future.
0: So on today's History Talk, we meet with three historians to ask, it takes a historian to understand the Middle East, doesn't it? Just maybe they can help us better understand the complex developments in that region of the world, so stay tuned.
2: Hi, my name is Patrick Sharf. I'm a PhD student in the History Department I study early 19th century Egypt, specifically the role of Muslim scholars in political debate.
3: Hi, I'm Balta baltejoglu Bremer. I'm also in the History Department at Ohio State University. My main area of research is the early modern conflict between the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Muslim community.
4: And I'm Jane Hathaway. I'm a professor of history at Ohio State and a scholar of the Ottoman Empire.
1: Thank you all for joining us today, we appreciate it. And In a recent distinguished lecture at the Ohio Academy of History, Jane, you asked, it takes a historian to understand the Middle East, doesn't it? So why are historians better prepared to make sense of the Middle East today?
4: When an historian studies the Middle East, he or she is entering what's often a lifelong engagement with the society in question. Uh, and this is true of the three of us. We go to these countries frequently, often over the course of many years, We speak the languages of the countries concerned, we don't rely on interpreters, and we also read the languages, living and dead. We know something about a pretty good cross section of the society in the countries we study over a period, a a lengthy period. This is an engagement with the region. We are not foreign interjections studying the Middle East as an object, so when we study the Middle East we're really uh, becoming part of a scholarly community that very much includes colleagues in those countries and from the countries concerned.
2: Is that the case you found with your own research, Patrick and Aisha? Absolutely. We've all spent significant time in uh, the countries. We look at actually multiple countries uh, that that we look at, and we end up uh, sort of interwoven in uh, the scholarly communities there, meeting people from all walks of life, but particularly people from scholarly communities there. And I do think that historians oftentimes end up with a linguistic advantage, for example, over, um, you know, a lot of of people who are engaged in the Middle East. I think that historians have a particularly rigorous linguistic background, which I think is very helpful for, you know, at the very least, uh, following the news, things like that. And, of course, engaging in real conversations with people from, from lots of different parts of the Middle East.
3: And in my situation, it is a little different because I'm originally from Turkey and I'm studying Ottoman history. So in that part, um, I don't have that um, perception of studying another culture or history. But when I'm in Iran, when I'm studying the Iranian language and culture, that part of um, scholarship comes to me as well.
0: And Aisha, I really want to throw this next question to you first. One of the most important divisions we see right in the Middle East, and yet one that you know we find is often really poorly understood, is the sectarian divide of Sunnis and Shiites. And so, what is this religious difference, and how has it been important both historically and for today as well?
3: Um, it is actually important to know the origins of this division if we are trying to understand what is going on in the current Middle East between the Sunnis and Sunnis and the Shiites. And the uh, ordinal Sikhism between the Sunnis and Shiites occurred in the 7th century. And this part is important because it actually began as a political division, not a religious one that almost everyone assumes. That's well, fascinating. Uh, after Prophet Muhammad died in 632, the inevitable question of succession emerged in the Muslim community and majority of Muslims believe that the elite members of the community should determine who will succeed the prophet. But on the other hand, a smaller group of Muslims believe that the leadership of the community should stay within the family of the prophet himself through his cousin and son-in-law Ali, who is actually an important figure. The name Alawite comes from, which means the partisans or supporters of Ali, which is like an additional term that we use for uh, some of the or many of the Shiite communities throughout the Middle East. Um and it was fundamentally that political division that began the Sunni Shiite split. Eventually Ali was chosen, the fourth caliph, but violence in the Muslim community had, had already begun. The second and third caliphs or leaders of the Muslim community had been murdered and Ali's ultimate end wasn't actually any different because he was also killed in 661. This ongoing violence continued between Ali's son, Hussein, and another leading Muslim family, the Umayyads, who became the ruling dynasty of the Muslim community after Ali's death. Hussein and the supporter of him rejected the Umayyad rule, and in a war between the Umayyads and the supporter of Hussein, the latter was killed and decapitated, and his head carried in tribute to the Umayyad Caliph in Damascus. And this is important because his death became the crystallizing force around which a sect, the Shiite sect, formed in the following decades and centuries. Hmm. The Shiites called their leaders imams, Ali being the first and Hussein being the second. And the significance of the imams for the Shiites is actually one of the fundamental differences that separate these two sects, Sunnis and the Shiites. The imams have taken a spiritual significance, almost a divinity, that the Sunni clerics deny to have. And other than the issue of succession and the divinity attributed to the Shiite imams, there isn't actually much religious difference Mm. between the two biggest sects. Uh, of Islam. And today the Shiites are concentrated in Iran, southern Iraq, and southern Lebanon, but there are significant Shiite communities in Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Pakistan, and India.
4: I'll, I'll just add that we tend to see these two sects in very monolithic terms, each one as a monolith. Um, in fact, they're both diverse. In and of themselves, and Shiism in particular um, has an, has at least three major subsects today. Uh, when we think of Shiites, I guess if we tend to think of one, it's the Twelvers because they are today the largest subsect in the world and the one dominant in Iran. Um, because of the conflict in Yemen and the Houthi, the advance of the Houthi rebels, people have begun to be aware of the smallest subsect today, the Zaydis, who are quite different from Twelvers and also Ismailis, uh, the second largest who today are by and large followers of the Aga Khan or another leader in India.
1: And thinking about defining these differences and what we hear today in the news, analysts of the Middle East often talk about ancient ethnic hatreds when discussing the enduring instability and violence in this region. And over the past decades, this has been true. But is this explanation of ancient hatreds true or helpful to understanding the Middle East today? And Patrick, we'll throw this one to you.
2: This is one of the most difficult questions in a sense. Uh, I think the answer has to be yes and no, because we can't say that, that there was no such thing as a sunni split. There was. But the yes part isn't really helpful. It's the no part that's helpful, because... The, the motivations and the context is completely different, right? Yes, um, the rhetoric of sectarianism can draw on a very long tradition, but uh, that tradition is in, in part rhetorical, and it's not entirely relevant to the, to the conflicts that are going on today, and it's certainly not the cause of, of the conflicts that are going on today. The causes of the current conflicts spring from very contemporary circumstances, as is always the case.
4: You also see a continuing pattern of ethnic change in the region, One thing I find puzzling about um, attitudes toward the Middle East and other parts of the world is the idea that until the 20th century, or at least the late 19th, everything had been unchanged for millennia. And yet the Middle East, as every student who studies history in high school learns, I hope, is that it's a crossroads. And there have been migrations through it of various ethnic, religious, um, lifestyle, ecological groups, pretty much from the beginnings of human civilization, if not before, straight through till today, including a number of major demographic changes in the Islamic period, beginning as early as the 11th century, if not before. So the current demographic upheaval can be seen as, in some senses, a continuation of past patterns, despite very unfortunate circumstances that accompany it. Yeah. And I think that really
0: refers back to the first question we started with, too, about why historians are so well positioned to, to kind of highlight uh, an understanding of these issues. And so keeping an eye on this really long, broad outlook here, we often kind of talk about this clash of civilizations between Islam and the West, kind of a popular trope. And so is there such a thing as such a clash? And for how long, if so? And is this a helpful idea for understanding global history or today's events? And Jane, if you wanted to
4: start here. The short answer would be no, it's not helpful, and it is, there is no clash of civilizations. <laughs> there is the perception of a clash of civilizations, and we could take it back to a number of starting points or first articulators, whether Samuel Huntington or Rudyard Kipling. To speak of a clash of civilizations assumes that each Quote unquote side, the Middle East on the one hand or Islam on the one hand and the West on the other, conceived of themselves as such for a very long time, perhaps going back to the beginnings of Islam in the seventh century. And that's clearly not the case. There was no conception of the West. Um, Islam was just starting out as a new religion, so there arguably was no conception of the religion as um, a developed entity. Today, one of the ironies of the current situation is that some of the jihadist groups in particular, ISIS and others, have taken up this rhetoric of clash of civilizations and are using it themselves, referring to Judeo-Christian crusaders and the like. So it's more or less taken on a life of its own, even though there really is no historical reality to it. And what strikes you, particularly in a situation like the crusades, is the divisions on each side.
2: I absolutely agree uh, that it really does not exist um, in the overwhelming majority of cases. But, of course, uh, there are some people really on both sides that want it to exist, right? And that's uh, – the challenge is to make sure that it doesn't. But I, I, there's a, a great video on YouTube with the amazing Egyptian novelist Alaa Aswani. Uh, who said quite pointedly that not only does classical civilization not exist today, but it never has. Civilization has always been a cooperative enterprise between many different cultures. And while political divisions and and wars have always happened, uh, to describe that as a split between civilizations really seems tendentious in a way.
1: And so thinking about civilizations and all these different places as well, who do you see as the most important regional powers today and how and why did they become regional powers and have they always been these regional powers?
3: I would say the main regional powers of the region are now Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Israel. And starting with Turkey, I would say Turkey's power partially comes from its Ottoman legacy uh, as the main empire that ruled the region for more than 400 years. And Turkey is the the, the present uh, country, the current country, um, in who which has been placed as a role model in the region due to its 90-year-old um, democracy, sometimes well-functioning, sometimes not very well-functioning but also has played a buffer zone uh, between the Middle East and Europe. And this Mm. role has been accepted and promoted not only by West, but also by Turkey. In parts of its geographical position? Both geographically, Mm. it is in between, but also Turkey on one hand has the second largest army and a member of NATO, and also has been trying to be a member of European Union as a secular democracy. On the other hand, it is a majority Muslim country with strong... A connection to its Sunni identity, so that two parts has been playing like the the main um, aspects of this being in the middle. Um, Iran, on the other hand, constitutes the majority of the Shiite community, and especially after the Islamic Revolution of 1979, has acted like the main supporter and protector of the other Shiite countries and communities in the region. In this sense, it is enjoying a strong influence over Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly after the U.S. policies of President George W. Bush, but also over Syria and Yemen, who these two countries were also in this ongoing wars uh, between different branches of Sunnis and Shiites. Also, I will mention Saudi Arabia as a regional power, just due to being a very staunch Sunni um, country, but also a country that enjoys a large amount of oil revenue in the region and uses that oil revenue to support uh, sectarian conflicts or sides. And um, for Egypt, and I will definitely mention that, has been an opinion leader for much of the Arab world. Mm. And I will see that I will see Egypt as a birthplace of not only Arab nationalism, but also political Islam in its modern sense, when we look at the emergence of the significance and the role of Muslim Brotherhood, not only in Egypt, but also in uh, various other Middle Eastern countries. And, of course, the importance of Suez Canal and the geopolitical uh, importance of Egypt in the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern security and, and the close relationship between Egypt and United States are all very important to understand Egypt's location. And lastly, of course, <coughs> Israel is an unusual, I would say, regional power because of its limited um, natural and human uh, resources, while its military is qualitatively Stronger than many other countries in the region, its population is less than 9 million compared to 80 million Turks and Iranians and 90 million Egyptians and 30 million Saudi Arabians. But while lacking natural resources and manpower, Israel is bountiful in technology, including a widely believed nuclear weapon technology. And of course, the almost unconditional U.S. support, both Mm, um, financial and political support, has made Israel a very uh, strong Mm. uh, actor in the region.
4: Hmm. I'll I'll jump in and say I agree with all of Aisha's choices except maybe Saudi Arabia and Egypt. When when I gave my talk to the OAH, I said Saudi Arabia is not on my list because uh, even though it certainly uh, has an amazing degree of U.S. support uh, and has a lot of oil money, at least for now, I don't really see it as a regional power in the sense that Iran and Turkey are. It doesn't have the population. It doesn't have the societal complexity. It would very much like to be a regional power, and I think that's part of the reason it's bombing Yemen today. It is inserting itself into the equation. Egypt certainly, Mm -hmm. as Aisha has pointed out, has historically been one of the most important regional powers. And as she said, an opinion leader for the Arab world for decades, if not over a century. But what's going on today? We don't really see it fulfilling that role. And the last few years has been in the news as well, too. Well, in a sense, some
2: people thought that uh, with the Arab Spring, Egypt could in some way regain a, uh, a role of leadership. And certainly, Uh, The Arab Spring has continued to be a testament to Egypt's cultural power, but I absolutely agree with this question mark surrounding Egypt. I I couldn't agree more with that because Egypt has witnessed over the past few decades a continual slip in power that uh, Egyptian elites um, can decry, but they feel powerless to stop, unfortunately. And this has continued or even accelerated since the uh, recent overthrow of Mohamed Morsi, the elected president of Egypt, who was aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood, by uh, General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And uh, for example, just in the last few months, um, we see uh, an incredibly interesting development, which uh, is also puzzling in some ways, namely the... uh, proposed move of the capital of Egypt from Cairo to a new city which would be called the capital colon Cairo. Mm -hmm.
4: That's
2: an interesting choice. And what this reveals is not only the plan itself but it reveals I think another aspect of the long-term shift of power from Egypt to the Gulf uh, at least especially in terms of economic power because this new city Is funded by uh, Gulf capitalists, um, particularly the Emirates, um, but also the Saudis. And the Saudis have been major backers of Sisi financially, so they've really been asserting their influence within Egypt. So certainly the Saudis have been trying, with at least some success, to assert themselves uh, to a greater extent in their near abroad.
1: And I think this is something that maybe another question you guys are all reminding me of is how do we define a regional power, and is it different in the context of the Middle East? And maybe just, you know, just to backtrack for a second, I'm just curious on what is a regional power?
4: I think what we've all said here um, has reflected the different definitions, Mm -hmm. the different um, measures. Population is one. Um, Social complexity, meaning... uh, certain amount of diversity, class stratification, etc. But money and military power Mm, and technological expertise are also definitely factors. And so if you take all those factors into account, I would say there's no one country that has the highest levels of all of them. Mm. And there are different um, concentrations in different countries.
3: And I will just add some something new to the into the equation about Turkey. Since early 2000, one of the main cultural cultural exports of Turkey has been its TV shows, soap operas. And now they these TV shows are huge in, in all uh, Middle East and actually including Balkans and North Africa. I just read a survey, and every three out of four people in the Middle East said that they are closely watching those Turkey, Turkish soap operas. That's astounding. Yes. Yeah. So okay. Turkey is also playing, Not this is not a state uh, initiative, of course. These are all private companies are making these TV shows and exporting them into different co- countries. But at the end, we are encountering this new phenomenon about the whole Turkish culture being exposed Yeah, kind of cultural
0: East. power, soft power, yes, right? Exactly. influence across the region, too. Um, and so kind of thinking about kind of the broad picture here, continuing into a different area. Um, so, you know, if we think about things like climate change, or drought and water, famine, population growth, fossil fuels, you know, pick your kind of environmental issue. How have, you know, environmental factors like these affected the course of Middle Eastern history, you know, both past and even in the present? And Jane, if you want to start us off here?
4: I'm sure we all have something to say about that. Uh, Drought would stand out as the major contributor to the current situation, Mm. certainly. We know, it's been widely acknowledged, even in the popular media, that drought has played a significant role in the Syrian civil war. Both Syria and Iraq have had uh, multi-year droughts in the recent past. And when that happens, and certainly anyone who studies the Middle East historically knows this, rural populations tend to flee to the cities. This tends to create uh, growing cultural conservatism in the cities, and you can certainly see this throughout the region, not just in Syria, but also Egypt, Turkey, I assume Iraq, and feelings of alienation by a growing urban population, many of them underemployed or unemployed, and therefore desire for belonging in these conservative groups, which operations like ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra have taken advantage of. This also has an historical antecedent, the much heralded and now rejected decline of the Ottoman Empire. The 17th century crisis resulted from uh, a wave of cold, dry weather in the region, particularly in Anatolia, what is now most of Turkey, and led to similar population movements uh, and significant social unrest with, uh, with rebellions, actual armed rebellions, marching through Anatolia in the early 17th century. I would
2: add that we have to look at Middle Eastern environmental issues in the global context um, because just like the little ice age of the 17th century, well, environmental issues are a global issue today. And I would point to specifically the role of uh, food production and environmental impacts on food production leading up to the Arab Spring because having been in Egypt just prior to the Arab Spring, one of the major uh, complaints was um, the price of food, especially bread, right? And the slogan was, Right, So the social justice, bread, and uh, freedom, right? So bread is one of those, uh, one of those three things, and uh, there was serious inflation uh, regarding the price of, of bread, in particular in Egypt, prior to the Arab Spring, and uh, this is, has been linked by many people to broader global environmental issues.
0: And I think that wraps up our discussion today, and I'd like to thank Jane Hathaway, Aisha Baltagiolu brammer and Patrick Scharf for joining us today on History Talk. So thanks.
3: Thank you all. Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you.
1: History Talk is produced by Origins, current events and historical perspective. Full-length History Talk interviews and full info on Origins editors and staff can be found at origins.osu.edu.